1980, in a pub in the middle of Wales, a conversation was overheard between two men. And the eavesdropper was Gordon Green, who was the pub's owner. And the conversation pertained to a race, believe it or not, between men and horses. And one party in the conversation was overheard claiming that over a significant distance across country, a human runner was equal to any horse. And his theory was that because humans cool by sweating rather than by panting, they are not as subject as animals are to overheating. And Green decided that this theory needed to be tested in full public view. And so he organized the first of what has since become the annual man versus horse race, marathon actually. And this race, which takes place in the Welsh town of Sinorted, is uh, run over 35 kilometers, which is slightly shorter than an official marathon. And in the 35 events that have been held since its inception, a human runner has won exactly twice. Um, in 2004, the human runner beat the first horse by 2 minutes and 17 seconds. And in 2007, the first runner beat the first horse by 10 minutes and 56 seconds. Now, we should notice, by the way, that human runners begin the race 15 minutes ahead of the horses. So technically, a human runner has never actually completed the race faster than a horse, although they have won it, supposedly. Now, if you're, a, if you're a, an avid marathon runner, yeah, perhaps you're making a note somewhere to, um, to find an entry form for this race. But while you're doing that, I wonder if the rest of you would turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 11. And you'll see in a moment why I open with this illustration of the man versus horse race. Jeremiah chapter 11. And I'm going to read from verses 18 um, down through chapter 12 verse 6. Jeremiah is speaking in Jeremiah chapter 11. Uh, 11 verse 18 and he says the Lord made it known to me and I knew then you showed me their deeds but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter I did not know that it was against me they devised schemes saying let us destroy the tree with its fruit let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more but O Lord of hosts who judges righteously who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter, and set them apart for the day of slaughter. For how long will the land mourn, and the grass of every field wither? 
For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away. Because they said, he will not see our letter end. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these words of Jeremiah. Thank you for a man who was just so honest in his struggles with you. Thank you for your um, exhortation to him. And thank you for, as, as we will see this morning, Lord, that um, he seemingly took that exhortation very seriously. And he answered the, his life became the answer to the questions that you posed to him. Help us to be encouraged as we look at this text this morning, Lord, to be encouraged about what it means for us to compete with horses. Just help us to see very clearly what the text teaches and to um, make our own um, commitment to do as you challenged us, uh, Jeremiah to do in this text. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jeremiah, these verses that we just read, read Jeremiah 11 verse 18 to 12 verse 4 really, um, it's the first in a series of intimate conversations between Jeremiah and God about Jeremiah's struggles. Um, these these um, series of conversations, and there's five of them in Jeremiah, they're known as Jeremiah's Confessions. And the first of these confessions deals with a threat against the prophet's life from the inhabitants of his hometown of Anathoth. Jeremiah is made aware of this plot and he turns to God in prayer, where he receives both encouragement of future judgment for his enemies, but also an exhortation to persevere in the face of what will be even greater hardship to come. We're going to study these verses together under four broad headings. Four broad headings as we look at what it means for Isaiah to compete with, with Jeremiah, sorry, to compete with the horses. The first of those is in chapter 11, verses 18 to 20. And I would call this the conspiracy. So as we enter this text before us, we find ourselves witness to a mounting conspiracy. It was a conspiracy of which Jeremiah evidently knew nothing. He was completely blindsided when the Lord revealed this conspiracy to him. He says, I did not know that it was against me. Um, in verse 18, the Lord the Lord made, no, made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds, but I was like a little a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know that it was against me they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. That, the little phrase there, I did not know it was against me, seems to suggest that perhaps Jeremiah was aware that there was some sort of conspiracy going on. He'd heard some murmurings around the town of Anathoth, but he didn't know that they were plotting against him. And so when the Lord revealed Jeremiah, they're actually talking about you. This took Jeremiah completely by surprise. And why was he so blindsided? Well, it's because the source of the conspiracy was Jeremiah's own hometown. We read of the the town of Anathoth, the other, the men of Anathoth were rising up against Jeremiah. And if you go back and you read Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that Jeremiah was of the prophets of Anathoth. 
So these were his own brothers, the people of his own hometown, who were conspiring against him. The intent of these conspirators, it says here, was to destroy the tree with its fruit, to cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. In other words, their intention was to completely obliterate this man's name. They were hatching plots to take his life while it was still in its prime. We read in Jeremiah chapter 16 verse 1 to 2, Jeremiah had told the Lord, uh, the Lord had told Jeremiah not to marry and not to have children. And so the point is, at this point, while Jeremiah is talking here, he's still an unmarried man. He has no children. And so the plan of the conspirators is to kill him before he can produce offspring. Let's completely wipe him out now before he has children who can continue his legacy. And the prophet's response was to turn to the Lord in prayer, to turn to the Lord for justice. He says in verse 20, Jeremiah speaking, But O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Now, this may sit a little bit uncomfortably with us. Um, we may not like the fact that Jeremiah is praying here for vengeance. And we may not like it because we're familiar with texts in the New Testament that tell us not to worry about vengeance. So, for example, Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 20. Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And so the New Testament tells us, don't avenge yourselves. But I want to suggest to you that Jeremiah is actually not interested in avenging himself at this point. What he's doing is exactly what Paul tells him to do. He's turning over his case to the Lord for vengeance. Because he says, um, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. So Jeremiah is not taking matters into his own hands. He's not going to, to you know, grab some firearm here and go after his enemies and take care of them himself. I don't think he was in violation of that principle. He's committing his cause to the Lord. And at the same time, I want, us, I want us to remember that Jeremiah was a prophet. He was someone who had been appointed by God as a prophet, as a herald of God's truth. And so for his hearers, for these people of Anathoth to disrespect him, they were in fact disrespecting God's word. Because he was the one that was bearing God's word. And we see this principle sometimes in the New Testament as well. So, for example, if you read, you read 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is, is a defense of Paul's apostleship. And Paul's almost apologetic. as he, On a few occasions he says, you know, I, I don't really want to do this. I feel foolish for, for defending myself, but I have to do it. Because people were calling into question his apostleship. And thereby calling to, into his question into question is God-ordained authority. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians says, you know, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. For the sake of God's truth, I am going to defend my apostleship. And that's pretty much where Jeremiah is. I don't think he was so bothered by, by the personal slights against him. Um, he was more bothered that God's people had no regard for God's prophet. I don't, think we can, I don't think we can, by the way, completely separate the two. I think he was a little bit concerned that, that people were particularly the people of his own hometown, were conspiring against him. But he's more concerned about God's truth. Well, let me just say that there are no prophets sitting here today, at least not in the biblical sense of the word. 
Nevertheless, we must understand that God takes his prophetic word, God takes the scriptures, the word of God, very seriously. And as we discharge God's truth, as we share God's truth with others, we must do so in a way that is unapologetic. Because this is God's truth. And people need to hear it. And it is authoritative. And people must submit to its authority. We must know that those who reject the truth will have to answer to God for the rejection of the truth. On the other hand, let us personally be persuaded that we cannot dismiss faithful teaching with impunity. As people come to us with the truth of God, we cannot say, well, I don't like that and expect nothing to happen. God takes his truth very seriously. And when we are exposed to faithful teaching, we cannot hope to escape God's punishment if we refuse to submit to it. And so that's the conspiracy in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 11. And then in verses 21 to 23 of the same chapter, we have what I would call the comfort. And the Lord's response initially is one of comfort to Jeremiah. So the Lord says in verse 21, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. Verse 21 gives us some further insight into the reason for this conspiracy. It says that the men of Anathoth, who were seeking Jeremiah's life, were saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by a hand. Well, this threat warrants some consideration. Because I want you to bear in mind that these, these were not, you know, we just saw this, this missions presentation. And, and often in these, these, um, on that, that open doors watch list, when you read of countries that are persecuted, they're being persecuted by, by either sort of the, the militant uh, Muslims of the world or by the militant atheists of the world. Okay? That's where we kind of almost expect persecution to come from. But that's not what's happening over here. Jeremiah is not being persecuted, as it were, by the militant Muslims or by the militant atheists. These are people of Anathoth, the priests of Anathoth. These are his own people, supposedly professing Christians who were bringing persecutions about them, persecution to him. It says here, in fact, if you, drop, if you look down very quickly in um, chapter 12, verse 2, um, yeah, Jeremiah is speaking about these people who are persecuting him. And the, the second part of verse 2, is, um, Jeremiah says, You, Lord, you are near in their mouth and far from their heart. In other words, these are people who talked about Yahweh. They claimed to be followers of Yahweh, and yet they were opposed to Yahweh because they were opposing God's prophet. If you wanted to put this in, in terms that perhaps we would understand, the threat was coming from nominal Christians from people who professed to be followers of God. And Jeremiah's experience of persecution from nominal Christians, I would suggest, is one that is increasingly being experienced in our day. As people, as we, we stand firm for the truth of God, there are those who profess to be followers of Christ who will oppose us because they don't actually like the truth of God. There are many who once professed Christ who have abandoned that profession and have taken to opposing Christianity. And there are many more who continue to profess Christianity, but who oppose faithful proclaimers of God's word. 
What was it about Jeremiah's ministry that drove him to hate, to hate him so much? Perhaps this will help us a little bit. Because if we understand why these nominal Christians in Jeremiah's day opposed him, perhaps it will help us to understand much of the opposition that we might face as proclaimers of God's truth. In short, the men of Anathoth, uh, Philip Ryken says, the men of Anathoth didn't like Jeremiah's preaching. They were not happy with his homiletics. There was something about Jeremiah's preaching that rubbed the priests of Anathoth the wrong way. And what was that? Well, there's a couple of things. There's a few things. Number one, Jeremiah's preaching condemned their character. So Jeremiah 5 verse 31 and chapter 6 verse 13, both those verses, um, Jeremiah says in, in chapter 5 verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. In other words, they're not, they're not interested in God's truth. They're saying what they want to say. They're leading people as they want to lead people. Jeremiah 6 verse 13. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. And so Jeremiah was calling into question the character of these people. And when you call into question the character of those who profess to follow God and yet to show no fruit of following God, you will face opposition. Secondly, Jeremiah's preaching condemned their false worship. Remember, Jeremiah ministered, if you read chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, Jeremiah ministered in Josiah's day. His ministry commenced in the 13th year of Josiah. And Josiah was a godly king. He was a king who ruled for 31 years and who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so Jeremiah was one who supported Josiah's reformed reforms, which included, not many of the, not many of the good kings did this, but jo Josiah was one of them, which included the removal of the high places throughout the land of Judah. Now many of, the, many of the kings, it says, if you read Kings and Chronicles, it says, so-and-so did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except he did not remove the high places. Josiah was one of those who took it all the way, and he removed all the high places, which was important because God had said in the book of Deuteronomy, when you come into the promised land, you don't worship at the high places that are there. I will choose the place where the temple will be built, and you will go to the temple to worship. You will bring your sacrifices to the temple. You don't just do it wherever you find a high place. And so Josiah took that word very seriously and he removed the high places and he had Jeremiah's support in doing that. The problem is that as the local shrines and high places were removed in places like Anathoth, the priests of Anathoth who helped people to worship at those high places were suddenly put out of a job. And so Jeremiah was effectively saying, you're doing wrong here. You shouldn't be helping people to worship at these high places. Let's get them out of the way because they're supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship. And so Jeremiah was condemning their false worship. His preaching threatened their job security. His preaching threatened the local economy, which was supported by idol manufacture. And so they didn't like the fact that Jeremiah was condemning their false worship. And as we tell people that there is a right and a wrong way to worship the God of the Bible, we can expect to face opposition. I think thirdly, Jeremiah's preaching was out of step with the times. Perhaps they might have accused him. You see, he preached judgment while the other prophets were preaching peace. Jeremiah 6 verse 14 and Jeremiah 8 verse 11, exactly the same words. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
Jeremiah was preaching, the Babylonians are coming. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to destroy the city. Judgment is coming. And the other prophets are saying, Jeremiah, stop with all this judgment talk. God, God's lying. In fact, the, the people, the other prophets are saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They're saying, do you, Jeremiah, do you really think God's going to allow this, this magnificent temple, his place to be destroyed? Come on. The mere fact that the temple is here is evidence that we have God's favor with us. And Jeremiah was saying, no, the temple's going to be torn down. It's going to be destroyed. Everyone was telling Jeremiah, no, 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 Jeremiah, you need to preach peace. And Jeremiah was saying, I can't do that. And perhaps they were accusing Jeremiah, like we very often get accused today, of saying, you're out of step with the times. You're on the wrong side of history. We hear that all the time. You know, Christians who who faithfully stand on the word of God and oppose same-sex marriage, we're told all the time, no, you're out of step with the times. You're on the wrong side of history. And people don't like that when we are faithful with the truth. And that invites opposition. And then fourthly, Jeremiah's preaching was unpatriotic. You see, he advocated surrender to Babylon. He's saying, the Babylonians are coming, and you know what? When they come, submit to them. Because God has said, this is what's going to happen. You are going to be taken into captivity. You're going to go to Babylon for 70 years. And when you get there, live there. And build your houses there. And educate your children there. And, and pray for the peace of that city. Pray, pray for the peace of that place. And the, other, and the other prophets are saying, no, Jeremiah, we cannot submit to the Babylonians. And Jeremiah is saying, but God's telling you to submit to the Babylonians. Jeremiah supported the Jerusalem priests. This is a bit of a technical note, but the, the priests in Jerusalem were from the priestly line of Zadok. Um, the priests in Anathoth, where Jeremiah was from, were from the priestly line of Abiathar. And these two priestly lines were often at each other about who gets, to, who gets all the priestly privileges and who gets to do what. And Jeremiah was saying, Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship God. And perhaps his brothers were saying, but Jeremiah, you are a priest of Anathoth. How can you support those people over there that we're at war against? That's not being very patriotic. His preaching brought a disgrace to the family. Again, we saw in the, in the missions presentation here that, that people who convert to Christianity, it's often, they're often forced to recant their faith, or the attempt is made to force them to recant their faith through forced marriages and that kind of stuff. I, I heard a story... Um, the beginning of this year somewhere where, where um, there was a Muslim man who had converted to Christianity somewhere in the Middle East and his father had put a price on his head. In the local newspapers, his father had said, I want, this man is bringing disgrace to my family and I will pay anyone who kills him and brings me his body to show that he has been killed by his own father. Preaching that is unpatriotic is not popular and it will invite opposition. And I want to suggest to you that God's truth today is still characterized by Jeremiah-like preaching. God's truth still condemns godless character. God's truth still condemns false worship. God's truth is still out of step with the times. And God's truth is still often perceived to be unpatriotic. And all of this invites opposition, even from those who are closest to us. So how do we respond when this opposition arises? Well, how did Jeremiah respond? And so we've seen the conspiracy in chapter 11, verses 18 to 20. We've seen the comfort in chapter 11, verses 21 to 23. 
Now in chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, we have the complaint, Jeremiah's complaint. And this is interesting because um, Jeremiah, like Job and like several of the psalmists, he believed in God and he stood under God's sovereignty, but he sometimes found God's ways difficult to comprehend. And, and again, if we're honest, we sometimes are there. Okay? We, we believe that God is sovereign. We believe that God is in control of all things, but we don't always understand what God is doing. And it's very interesting that at this point, Jeremiah takes his place, takes his complaint to God. This isn't the only place in Scripture where the seeming prosperity of the wicked is questioned, but it is significant that it follows on the, on the heels of what we've just read. Okay? Because there are some other places. So, for example, if you go and you read Psalm 73, Psalm 73 is a question about, is a psalm questioning why do the wicked prosper? And the psalmist begins, and he has all these questions. Why did the wicked prosper? Why did they, are things going so well for them? And then the psalmist said, and I had all these questions until I came into the house of the Lord. And then I understood. When I was exposed to the truth of God, to the truth of God's character, to the truth that, that the wicked will ultimately find destruction, when I was exposed to that truth, I was okay. And I had no more questions, and I was able to worship. Jeremiah is not the same. You see, Jeremiah has just been given an answer. God has just told Jeremiah in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 11, judgment is coming for them, Jeremiah. And yet Jeremiah is still not satisfied. He's still going to continue asking questions. It was enough for Asaph in Psalm 73 to know that God would judge the wicked in the end, but that was not enough for Jeremiah seems like he wanted judgment to come sooner rather than later. And again, Jeremiah is not questioning God's character here because he begins in chapter 12, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. He's not questioning God's character. He's simply saying, Lord, I, I, I know who you are. I believe you are who you reveal yourself to be, but I don't understand why you're allowing this to happen. And so look what he says. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. He says, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away, because they said he will not see our latter end. Jeremiah acknowledges that God is righteous. He's not accusing God of some moral failure in allowing the prosperity of the righteous, of the godless. He acknowledges that their prosperity derives from God. It says, verse 2, you plant them and they take root. So he recognizes that God is the one that's allowing this. But he wonders, why does God allow their prosperity to, to continue for so long? He says in verse 4, how long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? One of the, one of the, um, in, Deuter in the book of Deuteronomy, one of the covenantal curses, if the people were unfaithful to the covenant from God, for God, was that God would shut up the heavens, that there would be no rain, that there would be famine and there would be drought. And what's happening here, what Jeremiah is saying, is that there's famine and there's drought, and the people are suffering because these, these religious leaders are, are leading people away from God. And why are you allowing them to continue doing this while, the, while your people are suffering? Why do you allow the, the general populace of Israel to suffer as these, as these 
priests continue in a way that is opposed to you. Jeremiah has some questions. He's not, again, he's not, he's not accusing God of any wrongdoing, but he has some, there's some specific cases of right and wrong that Jeremiah wants to discuss. Specifically where cases where the wicked seem to be prospering. He believes that God is just. He believes that he cannot refute God. And yet he knows that God is amenable to complaints. He knows that God is willing to hear. You see, God is God. And therefore we need to be careful how we speak to him. But God is our father. And God is amenable to complaints. He's willing to listen to us when we don't understand. It's not necessarily wrong to take your questions to God, so long as your attitude and your disposition in doing so is one in which you acknowledge that God is ultimately righteous. You see, sometimes we think that it's, that, that it's, almost, it's almost rank heresy to even utter the word why as we go to God. I don't think that's true. And in fact, I can tell you that's not true. How do I know that? Because Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus asked the why question. He wasn't being irreverent in the way that he asked it, but he asked the question. And so sometimes I think it is okay for us to ask God why when we don't understand what God is doing. As long as we don't go over the line and begin accusing God of wrongdoing. Jeremiah didn't do that yet. Righteous are you, O Lord. The text nowhere condemns Jeremiah, neither here nor in many of the other places in, his book, in this book where Jeremiah is frank and honest with God as he lays his soul bare. We should also notice that Jeremiah's complaint is not based exclusively on his own hurt feelings. And no doubt his feelings were hurt when it was revealed to him that it was the people of his own country who were plotting against him. But his complaint extends beyond personal feelings his complaint was rooted first of all in reverence for God's truth he complains in the light of his faithfulness to the prophetic office he says in verse 3 but you O Lord you know me and you see me and you test my heart toward me Lord I have been faithful you've called me to be a prophet and I've faithfully discharged my office and yet the people are are opposing me he's not worried about primarily about his own hurt feelings but he is concerned that the people are rejecting the truth that he proclaims to them. So his complaint was rooted in reverence for God's truth. His complaint was also rooted in his love for God's people. As I said, the people of Israel were suffering because the priests were, were persisting in their unfaithfulness. And, and there was drought and there was famine and the people were suffering. And, and Jeremiah is saying, Lord, why are you allowing the people to suffer because of the way that the priests are misleading them? Why don't you just judge the priests, judge the prophets, so that your people don't have to suffer. His complaint was rooted ultimately in his honor for God's character. He complains in the second part of verse four um, for the evil of those who dwell in. Oh, sorry, um, yeah, the evil of those who dwell in the beasts and the birds are swept away, because they said he will not see our latter end. You see, these guys, these these priests, they were they were misrepresenting God and they were misrepresenting God's truth and in it all they were saying as it says there he will not see our latter end in other words they thought that they were beyond the reach of God's judgment that we can do whatever we want and God can't do anything about it you know, we can we can oppose Jeremiah 
we can bring these false supposed prophecies to God's people and God can't do anything about it. We're beyond the reach of, of God's care, beyond the reach of God's judgment. And I think it's true to say that it's the height of wickedness to claim that God is morally indifferent to sin. That's what the people were saying. God doesn't really care what we're doing. God can't see it. God can't do anything about it. And Jeremiah is concerned that God's character is being slighted as these people, as these religious leaders are opposing the truth. And so let me just ask you this question this morning. Are you concerned that God's people, or that people in general, revere God's truth? Surely it should bother us in some way when we hear, when people hear the truth but feel that they can safely ignore it. When we declare God's truth to people and they're like, ah, God can't do anything to me. I'm beyond the reach of God's care. I'm beyond the reach of God's judgment. Something, it shouldn't sit right with us when people think they can ignore God's truth with impunity. Let me ask you this. Are you concerned for the welfare of God's people at large? You see, when shepherds are unfaithful, the sheep suffer. And that should grieve us. It should grieve us that there's, that there's so many of God's people in churches where they're being ministered to by unfaithful shepherds. Why does God allow that? It should grieve us. Are we concerned that others honor God's character? Does it bother us when people say things about God that are not true? When people, people blaspheme God? Again, it shouldn't sit right with us. Something It didn't sit right with Jeremiah, and it shouldn't sit right with us. And so we've seen in chapter 11, verses 18 to 20, the conspiracy. And in chapter 11, verses 21 to 23, we've seen the comfort and in chapter 12, verses 1 to 4, we've seen the complaint. And now in chapter 12, verses 5 to 6, we see what I've called the contest. You see, there were some, Jeremiah is asking God a lot of questions. And I think there were some good, good answers to those questions. And no doubt Jeremiah expected to receive the answers. He's asking questions. Okay, Lord, here's my questions. Let me see you list the answers for me. You see, when he complained about the slow justice of God, no doubt he expected God to defend his timetable. He expected an answer to the problem of evil, some philosophical explanation of the relationship between divine sovereignty and human depravity. You see, human beings often demand that kind of explanation from God. I have questions and I want God to answer my questions. Like Jeremiah, we want answers. We want to know why the innocent suffer while the wicked flourish. We want to know why good things happen or why good things happen to bad people and sometimes why bad things happen to good people. But God doesn't always answer our questions. In fact, I would say God usually doesn't answer our questions. Why? Because God's servants, Warren Wesby said, God's servants don't live by explanations, they live by promises. It wasn't the answer that Jeremiah needed. He needed to be braced for what was to come, not pampered. And so, yeah, God gives him an answer in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 12. And listen to God's answer. God says to him, If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers... And the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. 
say, what is God saying to Jeremiah? What is, what is God's answer to Jeremiah? How would we summarize these two verses? Well, I think the, I think the, uh, the uh, rock band Bachman Turner Overdrive answered it when they said, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's really what God is saying to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you haven't even, you haven't even begun to experience what is coming to you. Jeremiah, if you're weary from the foot race, how will you manage the equestrian challenge? You've been running against other human opponents and they're, they're, they're wearying you out, Jeremiah. My next challenge for you is I'm going to make you compete against the horse. If you're complaining in the foot race, what are you going to do when I make you compete against horses? He says, if, you, if you're trusting in a safe land, what will you do in the thicket of Jordan? In other words, if you think that you're... you're, you're okay where you are now what are you going to do when i take you out of where you're comfortable and i send you somewhere else that jeremiah the challenges are going to get bigger you're complaining now that that you don't know what's happening but there's bigger challenges coming jeremiah don't expect things to get any easier and by the way verse six if you're complaining in general that the inhabitants of anathoth that the people of of your own hometown or against you jeremiah it's worse than you think because it's not only the people of your hometown it's even your brothers and the house of your father it's not only the general people of anathoth it's your own family who are plotting against you it's even worse than you think jeremiah he says they are in full cry after you john calvin said that to cry after someone is an evidence of settled hatred for when an enemy stands his ground and offers resistance, it is no wonder that we assail him. But when he turns his back and allows that he is conquered and declines fighting, it seems that we are burning with a furious hatred when we follow him and draw him to fight against his will, even when he of his own accord avoids a contest. It was to send forth, set forth this blind fury that God said they cried after Jeremiah. In other words, Jeremiah, even if you throw up your hands and you say to your own family, you know what, I don't want to fight anymore, they're saying, well, we still want to fight. We're still after you, Jeremiah. Even if you want to give up, we're not willing to allow you to give up. Even if you put up no resistance, we will still hate you. Well, I think there's at least three things that we can say, three lessons that we can draw from the Lord's response to Jeremiah. The first one is simply this, that the life of faithful servant, faithful service is not easy. It's like running a race. There is no promise in scripture that the Christian walk will be plain sailing. It's difficult. The Bible tells us that it will be difficult. The Bible speaks about the fact that Jesus didn't come to send peace, he came to send a sword. That he came to set father against sons and mother against sons and father-in-law against sons-in-law, etc., etc. There's no promise in scripture that the Christian walk will be plain sailing. I think secondly we can learn that the life of faithful service usually gets harder, not easier. And the question is, are you willing to put in the hard yards now so that you will be better prepared for what is yet to come? Philip Graham Riken says, if you complain about the simple things that God has already asked you to do, then you lack the spiritual strength to do what he wants you to do next. If your troubles keep you from doing the Lord's work now, you will never have the strength to do it later. If you want to do something great for God, then you must begin by doing the little things for God. And what are those little things that he's calling us to do? I'm thinking about things like being faithful in church attendance. 
It's really not that hard a thing for you to get up on a Sunday morning, get in your car, and come and sit in church. But if you find that too difficult to do faithfully, you're never going to be prepared when God has the next big thing for you to do. What about your devotional life? You say, well, you know, I'm, I'm tired and I had, it's just so difficult for me to wake up early in the morning and spend time in God's word and spend time in prayer. If you find that too difficult to do, you're never going to be prepared when God says, okay, he has a bigger challenge for you to face. You see, we have to be faithful in the run of the mill things if we will be faithful in extraordinary things. The run of the mill things in life are not always easy or not even necessarily exciting, but they are important. The run of the mill is the foot race. The run of the mill things, your devotional life, your church attendance, that's competing against other human athletes. But there's bigger races to come. There are races where you're going to have to compete against horses. And if you're complaining that you can't even compete against human athletes, you're not going to be ready when God says, okay, it's time for you to compete against the horses. But then thirdly, I would say that the life of faithful service actually gets more rewarding as we mature spiritually. Warren Wiersbe says that each new challenge ultimately helped Jeremiah develop his faith and grow his ministry skills. The easy life is ultimately the hard life because the easy life stifles maturity, but the difficult life challenges us to develop our spiritual muscles and accomplish more for the Lord. The purpose of life is the building of character through truth. And you don't build character by being a spectator. You have to run with endurance the race that God sets before you and do it on God's terms. You see, for Jeremiah, God's words in verse 5 were, were both telling him what's going to come, but it was also a challenge. God was asking Jeremiah, Jeremiah, are you going to drop out of the foot race or will you compete with the horses? Because the horses are coming. What are you going to do? There's a man by the name of Eugene Peterson. He's written a, a um, book on these, these five confessions of Jeremiah. And uh, here's, what Jer- here's what Eugene Peterson writes. Eugene Peterson is, is uh, he's paraphrasing God's words to Jeremiah. And he says, here's what, here's what God is saying to Jeremiah. Quote, life is difficult, Jeremiah. Are you going to quit at the first wave of opposition? Are you going to retreat when you find that there is more to life than finding three meals a day and a dry place to sleep at night? Are you going to run home the minute you find that the mass of men and women are more interested in keeping their feet warm than in, li- than in living at risk to the glory of God? Are you going to live cautiously or courageously? At the first sign of difficulty, you are ready to quit. But if you're fatigued by this run-of-the-mill crowd of apathetic mediocrities what will you do when the real race starts the race with the swift and determined horses of excellence what is it you really want jeremiah do you want to shuffle along with this with this crowd or do you want to run with the horses and eugene peterson says it's unlikely i think that jeremiah was spontaneous or quick in his reply to god's questions he weighed the options he counted the cost. He tossed and turned in hesitation. The response when it came was not verbal, but biographical. His life became the answer. I will run with the horses. So will you allow your life to be the answer to that question this morning? Will you run with the horses? 
Now, I know that all of this may not sound particularly encouraging. <laughs> we all know what it's like to be wearied in that foot race. We all know what it's like to say, you know what, I'm ready to quit. Um, let me just drop out of the foot race now, right now. I'm not interested in running against horses. But if we're asking the question, if, if I get so tired in the foot race, how am I supposed to compete against the horses? Well, perhaps the best answer is the answer that God gave to another prophet. To another prophet by the name of Isaiah. To Isaiah, God said this in Isaiah chapter 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so where are you going to find strength to compete with horses? You're going to find it by waiting on God and trusting God to give you the strength to rise up like wing, with wings as eagles. As you faithfully wait on the Lord, and waiting on the Lord, that I mean sitting back with your arms and doing nothing. I mean waiting like a waiter. When you go to a restaurant, hopefully the waiter's coming and asking you what you want and bringing you the stuff that you need. As you wait on the Lord like that, as you serve the Lord, your strength will be renewed. And you will not, you will not only be able to compete with horses, you will be able to soar with eagles. Well, of course, I don't want to leave this text without noting that Jeremiah's experience foreshadowed that of a greater Jeremiah. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus came to his disciples and he says, Whom do people say that I am? And what did they answer? The answer came, Some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus' ministry in some ways reminded his contemporaries of Jeremiah. And I think we can see some clear parallels in the account before us between Jeremiah's ministry and Jesus' ministry. You see, like Jeremiah, Jesus faced opposition from those of his own village. We read in Mark chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, that they took offense at him. The people of, of Nazareth, they took offense at him. And Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. See, the people of of Nazareth, they didn't believe in Jesus. They were opposed to Jesus. In fact, even John chapter 7 verse 5, initially at least, even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. Remember, they came to him at one point and said, you know, Jesus, if you really claim to be Messiah, why don't you go to Jerusalem and do all these miracles that you're doing there? Let the people there see you. And then it says, John chapter 7 verse 5, for even his brothers did not yet believe in him. So like Jeremiah, Jesus faced opposition from those in his own village. Like Jeremiah, Jesus was initially, at least, rejected by his own family. Like Jeremiah, Jesus was led like a gentle lamb to the slaughter. It says in 11 verse 19, Jeremiah says, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And don't those words sound familiar, if you're familiar with the New Testament. Remember Acts chapter 8, Philip runs up and he sees the Ethiopian eunuch reading the scroll of the Old Testament. And he says, well, what are you reading? And the, the Ethiopian eunuch, it says that the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. 
And the, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus was like a lamb led to the slaughter. But there are also some, some distinctions between Jesus and Jeremiah. Because you see, unlike Jeremiah, Jesus was not blindsided by the conspiracy against him. He knew all along that his own people hated him. He knew all along that they wanted to kill him. Unlike Jeremiah, Jesus remained silent when he was threatened. Go read 2 Peter, and when he, was, when he was threatened, he did not answer back, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Unlike Jeremiah, Jesus asked God to forgive rather than to exact vengeance. And again, I'm not, I'm not bringing into question what Jeremiah did, because I don't think Jeremiah is taking personal vengeance. But Jesus just stands somewhat apart. Jesus didn't ask for vengeance upon his enemies. And it's because of Jesus that there is hope for the enemies of God to become friends of God. And so if you're an unbeliever here this morning, let me simply ask you this question. Do you realize that you stand in danger of God's vengeance? You see, you may be prospering right now, but God's promise stands regarding the wicked in Jeremiah's own day. What did God say of the wicked in Jeremiah's day? Chapter 11, verse 22, Behold, I will punish them. That promise stands. The day of slaughter, chapter 12, verse 3, is coming in which all of those who resist God's truth will be set apart. Judgment day is a grave reality. But there is hope. Because Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter, you don't have to be. You don't have to be set apart on the day of slaughter. Jesus was entirely innocent of any wrongdoing, and yet he became the sacrificial lamb for all of those who will put their trust in him. Jesus died so that we could be saved. And if you recognize that today, that you stand in danger of judgment, then call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Well, if you're a believer yeah, let me ask you this. How will you respond when you are opposed by the enemies of God's truth? There is no doubt a time and a place to pray like Jeremiah did. There is a time and a place to pray and say, Lord, why are you allowing people to resist your truth? Bring people under the sound of your truth. Help them to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet when we are personally affronted, the Bible calls us to a very radically different lifestyle, doesn't it? 1 Peter chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And that's what God calls us to today. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time in Jeremiah's life when he was opposed. And thank you that Jeremiah believed that you are righteous and he never called into character your question although he did wonder why you allowed him thank you for thank you for examples like jeremiah of of your servants who were just open and honest and who laid their souls bare before you lord help thank you for the promise that you gave jeremiah that your enemies would ultimately be punished but thank you also for the challenge that you gave jeremiah to realize that if we find if jeremiah found things difficult then he needed to realize that things were going to get far more difficult he needed to be willing to run with men if he was going to compete against horses and help us to take that challenge very seriously ourselves Lord, to know that we need to be faithful in the run of the mill things that you call us to if we're ever going to be 
hope to be faithful in the more difficult things. And so just ingrain these truths into our heart, we pray, and encourage us that we can do it because the Lord Jesus Christ is our example and he did it. We pray these things in his name. Amen.